Shabbat Shalom, church. While the young ones are continuing to uh, exit the sanctuary, their, um, their attempt at the Lord's Prayer kind of starts sounding like row, row, row your boat. Uh, you know how you do it? Start doing it in rounds. <laughs> you got three different uh, paces going there. But it's always a blessing and a pleasure to sow those seeds, to sow that truth. Because someday they're not just going to be cute little kids sitting on the steps. They're going to be people out in the real world who are going to need to remember his kingdom come. His will be done in their lives. So it's a significant thing that we do every week, and I'm grateful for it. I want to welcome those who are joining us online this morning, also those who will uh, find this uh, season of worship and study in the Word later. Uh, just by way of introduction, my name is Brent Avery, and uh, I actually uh, have a ministry called Maranatha Evangelistic Ministries. And one of my primary callings is to do exactly what we're going to begin doing today, which is studying the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not something that uh, uh, I just decided to get interested in. It's something that I feel like the Lord has really called me to do. Now, I have to confess that when I say that, that's kind of a scary thing to confess, because if you tell somebody that you're called to teach the book of Revelation and you stink at it, uh, then, then they might question whether or not you actually have that calling or not. So I guess I'll trust that the Lord has actually given that calling and he will uh, deliver this morning as we begin uh, initially what is going to be a, a three-week series that's going to blossom out into a I don't know, never-ending study maybe, uh, because in a few weeks we'll shut down for the holy days and for the feast. So these first three weeks, uh, as we begin this new series, The Lion's Roar, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, it's actually going to serve as an introduction. And you're saying, wait a minute, a three-week introduction? Yes, that's right. Now that may surprise you given that there are so many preachers, that, that there are many preachers out there uh, who uh, won't preach exegetically from this book. Many will grab a few hot topics that they feel they can get away with and uh, teach and not upset too many people. And I've known many of them and they're good friends. I've known great preachers who have literally boasted uh, to me that they have never preached through the book of Revelation. But I've also known genuine believers who kind of run to a safe corner of their favorite self-identification as a pan-millennialist. You know, it's all going to pan out in the end, so, so why do I really need to dive into that study? I've actually heard of ministers trying to, people trying to shoo people away from this book. Yet these people and these preachers are the very same people who will passionately quote, all scripture is God-breathed and is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And I, don't, I think we need to stop using that word adequate. That's a bad translation for our generation. I mean, nobody wants to be adequate. What it really means is that the person will be fully prepared and ready and equipped. Not just an also-ran, not just adequate. That's kind of what that word brings in our modern ears. But something, someone, male and female, who are ready to be used by God no matter the circumstance. Now, I know many preachers, including myself, who will take over a year, sometimes more, to study one gospel. 
I once started a series on the book of Romans, and I told the church we were going to read as far into the text as we were going to make it that day. Everybody opened their Bible, and I said, okay, here we go, Paul. And that's as far as we got. We just talked about Paul. But I understand that uh, there may be a reason why people are afraid of this book. Because people are weary of the extremes that are taken when this book is, is read and shared. We have those who abuse the predictive elements of the book. Those parts of the book that talk about future events. And sometimes because they focus so heavily just on those, they create fear instead of faith and distraction instead of discipleship. They're so busy telling us when the events described are going to happen that you never really get the blessing of why it's happening or what the Lord is trying to do with what's happening and what the Lord is doing in you while it's happening. Rather than being equipped by the revelation, we just get exhausted with never-ending speculation. On the other hand, there are those who are so determined to undermine the predictive elements of this prophetic book that they focus all of their efforts not on the when the events described are going to occur, but rather when the book was written, insisting that an early date of its writing will re somehow release us from the worry or the concern of future events because they want us to believe they've already happened. Now, I'm going to tell you right now from the get-go, I'm going to let the book be exactly what the book says it is. It's a prophecy in the fullest expression of what that means in the scriptures, and we're going to be looking at that. So now weariness sets in, and we have a whole new fear that grips the hearts of believers, not of the events described of the revelation or fear of someone uh, coming and, you know, being the Antichrist. We're afraid of preachers preaching through the book. We've added a whole new layer of fear. Now, before we pray in a few minutes... I want to show you why we're going to take our time and move through this book exegetically. Now, exegetically, if that's a word that's new to you or unfamiliar to you, exegetical preaching or teaching is handling the Bible text in a manner in, a manner in which they were given to us. Since they came to us in the form of books which contains letters and narratives, the best way to teach them is to chronologically proceed through a book from start to finish, word by word, line by line. And, and that's the way I like to preach. I discovered early on as a young minister I like to preach that way because it took the burden off of trying to figure out what I was supposed to preach the next Sunday. What I was supposed to preach the next Sunday was the next line, the next verse, the next paragraph. And, and that way we could bring whatever the word was that, that Paul or the, the apostles, whatever the text we were reading, that somehow we would have a consistent understanding of what the author was actually saying. That's exegetical preaching. As opposed to topical preaching, which, which can be exegetical. A person can say, hey, I want to preach about the love of God. And they can go to multiple passages about the love of God. And they can go line by line, word by word in those, in those verses. I'm not saying topical preaching can't be exegetical. I'm no good at topical preaching. I, I just do better line by line following the flow of the revelation as it's been given to us. This book begins with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Those words come to us in a book. John hears Jesus' voice command him to write these things that he sees and hears because Jesus intended this book to be studied. 
to be read, to be mined, to be cherished, to be guarded, to be kept. And the one who received it, the Apostle John, he was already so gifted at bringing prophecy and truth to us. I love how the first chapter of his testimonial gospel, John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he writes, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There's a chronology. And then he reminds us of that chronology of God's hesed upon hesed, that loving kindness, just one loving kindness after another. He said, for the law, the Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. For no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Christ has explained him. Now, the Greek word in the New American Standard translates this word ex egomai as he explained him. It literally means to show the way. The NIV translates it as has made him known. The King James translates it, he hath declared him. The English Standard Version translates it as he has made him known. But here's what I love about this verse and John's thought process. The Torah was given to be written so it could be received. That was the whole purpose of writing it down. But once it was written down and received, it had to be handled it had to be read line by line, word by word, phrase by phrase. John's whole first chapter of his testimony gospel reveals that Yeshua, Jesus, is the word of God who has made flesh. And then he uses this same Greek word, ex egomai, which is the same word from which we get our English word, exegetical. To exegete the word is to look intently at it, to focus on how it is used to bring us truth. And John says, Jesus was the word who was the best exegetical presentation of God. If you want to know the Father, study the Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John was told to write. We were told to read, to hear, to listen, and obey. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John did what he, told, he was told to do. Write it down. The question now is, will we do what we were told to do? To read and hear and embrace. Will you pray with me? Abba Father, it is a privilege and an honor to exegete this word of Scripture, this last word of Scripture that points us to the appearing, the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for everybody that's here today and everybody that is watching, and even those, Father, who will watch at some distant time, would your spirit meet them in this moment? 
and give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see. As we read, will you make what John saw come alive in our own hearts and minds? Will you equip us, reprove us, correct us, inspire us, and make us ready to stand in your presence, blameless, with great joy? Come and have your way in our hearts today, Lord. This is your time. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Now allow me to continue with a bit more introductory material before we dive into the text. We must first answer a question. What types of words are we going to encounter in this book? What type of terminology should I expect in a revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to a Hebrew apostle, a Hebrew prophet? Well, let me tell you a little story about a little experience I had where the Lord had to show me how to get this process started. Years ago, fall of 95, I just returned from an amazing visit, uh, summer living in uh, outside of Jerusalem, and uh, I got to work with Bridges for Peace, a, a mission organization. I got to do some archaeology down at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. But I have to admit that coming home, I was a bit frustrated and uncertain as how to proceed with some of the things the Lord had shown me during that summer. Then one night after a series of multiple nights of kind of waking up and uh, wrestling with the Lord about different uh, passages of scriptures and things that I felt like he was laying in my heart, the Spirit decided to get kind of uh, direct in my heart and mind uh, with what I call the internal audible. And it was one of those moments that was very, there was no, there was no sitting around wondering was that me or not. It was definitely not me. And he simply said this, he said, Brent, go back to the garden now, that doesn't sound something like something that would irritate you to hear, but it really frustrated me. Because having gone to Israel in 1990, from 1990 all the way through 95, I had begun a study of the Torah. I had been really, the, the, the thing that bothered me was I knew where the garden was. It was on the front end of the book, and I didn't really want to know about the beginning. I wanted to know about the end. And so after some time arguing with the Lord at 2.30 in the morning, I literally verbally protested, and I said, Lord, I don't want to go back to the beginning. I want to go to the end. You called me to teach the revelation to help me understand it. After all, that's what you called me to do. Lord, don't show me the beginning. Show me the end. And then the Holy Spirit had had enough of me, and he got pretty internally audible again. And he said, Brent, get out of bed and read Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Now, I want you to understand in that moment, I'm in a real predicament. If I get out of bed and I read Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, and it is about what has just been going on with me and the Lord, I, I'm pretty sure I'm in trouble because I have been arguing with the Almighty, and that's not a good thing. But if it has absolutely nothing to do with anything I've read, that's not good either because that means Brent's just been hearing voices, and that can't be good either. So I'm not going to win this one either way, but after telling the Lord I didn't want to know about the beginning I wanted to know about the end. This is what I read. Remember this and take it to heart, you rebels. Ow. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is yet to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Have you ever had a moment where you hoped God had a sense of humor? 
there, this was that. This was one of those moments where I realized, okay, you do want to show me something about the end. But he was helping me understand that there, there's, there's a context of some terminologies and some vocabularies that a lot of times we get to the end of the book that we just haven't, we don't have because we haven't taken time at the beginning. So I just want to highlight four types of terminologies. And again, this is just by way of introduction. Things that you should expect to run into. You should expect to run into Torah terminology. Words and imagery from its laws, its statutes, its commandments, its sacrifices, anything that falls into the context of the law of Moses, you should expect terminology reminiscent of that in this revelation. If you know that terminology, you're going to be able to recognize it. Secondly, you should expect to hear and see tabernacle and temple terminology, words and images from the shadow that was built here on earth that, the, that John is now seeing the reality in heaven. We were prepared for this moment by those shadows, and so we, we need that tabernacle temple terminology, including all of its furnishings, the, the layout, the architecture, everything about it, you should expect you're going to run into when John takes us through a stroll through the reality which is in heaven. You should expect to hear come across significant words and context of the times of the Lord. Words and images from Israel's history having received and keeping those divinely appointed times of the Lord that we're, we're getting ready to, to celebrate the fall feast here in just a few weeks with Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. All of these are a part of those seven divinely given Sabbaths of the Lord. All of these things, this divinely appointed times of the Lord, you're going to run into that terminology in the revelation. Why? How do I know that? Because he makes known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is yet to come. Finally, you should expect to run across words that I'm just going to call the typology of the patriarchs. This could actually go under the category of Torah but it's so significant, I think it needs to stand by itself. This is words and images that allude to prophetic truths that played out in the lives of the patriarchs and the prophets, meaning what you have seen happen in the lives of the patriarchs and the prophets of the past, you should expect to see at the end, just like we saw it at the beginning. Does that help a little bit? This gives us a context for when we come to these things. There, you know, I, the one thing I hope I, you never hear me say is, because every time I hear a Revelation teacher say it, I just, I just want to run. I'm going to give you the key. You know, and everybody's got their own key. And sometimes I'm, I sit there, I'm, nope, that key don't work. <laughs> so I, I don't like that terminology because I don't want it to come across as if, oh, Brent has discovered the way for you to understand this. No, I'm just telling you this is my expectation because this is the God I serve who makes known the end from the beginning from ancient times what is yet to come. If I'm going to learn about the end, I better learn about the beginning. Why? He told me to. And if that helps, praise the Lord. Well, let's dive into... We're going to study today, we're going to look at the first three verses. So let me begin, we're just going to read one verse at a time. The revelation of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. 
he sent and communicated it by his angel uh, to his bondservant, John. So we've got to begin by kind of getting a handle on what is the nature of this book. What is it? And I want to share four answers to that with you from this first verse this morning. The first one is this. It is an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, that, the minute you hear that word apocalypse, you know, every, the way Hollywood uses that, they've misused it. Apocalypse immediately makes you think of something negative. But the word apocalypse in the Bible makes you think of something positive. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. It's an exposing of truth. It comes from this Greek, the very first word of the, of the book, apocalypsis, and it means to unveil and to reveal. What's interesting is this word is used only once in the Revelation. Right here in this, the very first word of the very first sentence, it declares what this is. It is an unveiling. It is a revealing. It's not a concealing. God didn't give it to uh, Jesus to give to John to give to us so that we would be dumbfounded, that we would be left with just in ignorance. To, to believe that's what's supposed to happen is to violate the very nature, the meaning of the very first word. And, and, and one of the things, one of the reasons I think this is helpful for us is we need to begin to expect and believe that the heart of God wants to be revealed to the hearts of his children. That the mind of God wants to be revealed to the mind of his children. Sometimes we go through life pouting, well, Lord, if you just tell me this, if you just tell me that. Well, I, I think there's a lot of stuff the Lord would tell us if we'd start paying attention to what he'd already told us. And I know the angels are behind me snickering and going, listen to him talk like that. Because I'm like you, I, I have those times. This is an unveiling. By definition, it means that that that, that was which was veiled, that was not clear or easily seen, is now unveiled for the purpose of being seen and known and understood. God says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I have said I'm going to do. So everything we're going to read in this book is an unveiling of the purpose of God. We're going to see him bring about his plan for this world. And it begins with the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It is God's purpose to reveal his plan. Why? So our faith is in the one who's been unveiled as the one who will bring about all that God has purpose to do in his heart. So, may I just, if all, if all we had was these first few words, we would really have enough in, in this sense. There is no event coming or what we're experiencing. There, there was never an event in your past. There's not going to be a present, an event in your present. There's not going to be an event in your future that has any greater answer, solution, provision, equip, equipping than simply this, trust Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. He is the revelation. And if you think about our lives today, maybe the reason we need training in this is if you're like me, sometimes I'm amazed at how easily I'm distracted from my view of him. Just with the mundane things that I deal with in my life now. I need to know that he is the one 
who finishes what he started. I love what Paul prays for the Philippian believers and the confidence he expresses. He says, for I am confident, fully convinced of this, that the thing, that, that the, the, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, in you, he who began a good, we're not talking about a future prophetic event. We're not talking about the Antichrist. We're not talking about this bowl, that bowl, this seal. We're talking about you, us. That he who began a good work in you, it is the purpose of God to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What did, what did he say in Isaiah? My purpose will stand. I need to know past, present, future, whatever circumstances I'm in, if I keep my eyes on Yeshua, if I keep my relationship with him, he has got everything I need for that moment today and for tomorrow. Amen? And, and here's the crazy thing. Fulfilling his purpose in me is his primary plan. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do it. Paul goes on in another book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Messiah Yeshua, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apocalypse, that's the word. It's one of those 17 other places that it's used in the New Testament. Who will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus. Wow. There is a testimony concerning Christ that was confirmed in you. What does he mean by that? We're going to look at this more in weeks to come, but this word testimony is the declaring of something that has been witnessed and has occurred. But in the Bible, it, it is a testimony of that which God declared would come to pass, actually coming to pass. When John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, did, was he looking at the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sins of the world? Absolutely. Paul says that the prophetic testimony of Jesus Christ, that God's purpose would be fulfilled, has indeed been confirmed, manifested in you. In verse 8, he uses the same Greek word again to remind us that we will be confirmed. And this word confirmed, it means to walk safely, to walk firmly, to be on firm ground. To walk where it is solid. Do you remember the doxology of Jude? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with a great joy. When do people stumble? When they're not walking on solid ground. When they're walking on an uneven path. Paul is saying the power of God's prophetic word, there, there's a testimony that wants to manifest in you, and it is this, that he can keep you from stumbling. He can walk with you to the very end and cause you to stand in his presence. This book is an unveiling of the person who fulfills God's purpose, not just in this world, but in our lives. Are you with me, church? Secondly, this book 
is an appearing of Jesus Christ. As I previously stated, the word apocalypse is only used once in the book of Revelation, but it is used 17 other times, and it's always about this idea of appearing or being present in real time. Remember what I just read from 1 Corinthians. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this word is used to describe an act, the actual event of his presence at his second coming. But it always carries with it this, this, the revelation of knowledge and understanding because we have seen Jesus in the light and, and his glory. The apostles did not see any conflict that many Bible teachers stumble over. The apocalypse is, in fact, both an event related to the return of Christ and an expose of truth about Christ himself. He is the revelation, he is the apocalypse, but he is, it is also talking about his appearing. In fact, the word that we use for second, that is used for second coming, the word parousia, means the second presence. We'll be looking at that some more. This de book details the actual event of his coming and exposes the truth of what is happening in the world because of sin and more importantly what is happening in the believer because of truth and the salvation that we have in Jesus. Number three, it is an advance of knowledge. Notice the phrase which God gave him to show his bondservants that which must soon take place. That's what a revelation is. That's what a prophecy is. We are being given advanced information about things that must come to pass. And what this word must come to pass literally means is things that have to happen by necessity. They're not random acts of, of bad. They are purposeful acts to bring about the good that God has planned for us. I, I, I do not beat up the apostles I, when I was a younger preacher, maybe I stood and said some dumb things about, you know, old poor dumb Peter, and it finally dawned on me one day, one day I'm going to be standing in front of old, old dumb Peter, and dumb Peter's going to knock me halfway across the holy city. God chose him for that purpose, not me. So I don't, I don't want to say anything to demean them, but I do understand that moment when they're walking with the master and the master's trying to explain to them, I have to go to Jerusalem, guys. And I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be killed. And it has to happen. Peter says, never. I mean, Thomas says, well, let's just go to Jerusalem and die with the master it had to happen aren't you glad it had to happen wow nothing I'm glad it happened I'm sorry it had to happen because of my sin but Jesus made it clear it was necessity that may, my sin may have caused the necessity and I'm not happy about that but it had to happen and when we read the Revelation, we are suddenly, wow, we are suddenly like the disciples walking with Jesus, having him tell us, now, sons and daughters, I've got to tell you, there are some difficult things, there are some, there, there, there are some rough waters ahead, but these things must happen. 
are we willing to trust him? I mean, is it, is it just, do we, do we just prefer to sing wonderful worship songs about being with the boat, being in the boat with Jesus or walking on the wall, you know, oceans? I mean, is, all we, is that as close as we want to get to the reality of what it means to trust him? Are we willing to say, when that storm comes, I'm going to trust the one who's Lord of heaven and earth? It is an advanced knowledge. And that part causes so many to struggle. And what is ironic, uh, which is ironic because it was given so that we might stand and not stumble. It's almost as, there, there are some that are almost irritated with Jesus for, for telling us these things so much so they just don't want to deal with them when they don't understand that these things are being shown to us to equip us, to prepare us, to, to fill us with everything we need to make us more than adequate if we stay with him. One prophet of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is a perfect place to address a couple of stumbling blocks. One is that there are always those who want to try to find a way to make it not apply to me. Some people, secondly, some people, it is actually advanced knowledge. Um, some people question, is it actually advanced knowledge given about future events? So, so we struggle with these things. I was going to, as I was doing my study, in years past, I've always gone to a very famous uh, quote from the prophet Amos. But this time the Lord said, you know what, look a little deeper. And so let me read to you from Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Now, first let me just tell you what the situation is. Amos is a uh, prophet who is sent to the northern tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes. And basically his message to them is, you're about to go bye-bye. God's had enough. Now, in the chapters leading up to there, that he's had to deal with people saying, I mean, it, people of Israel, people who have this name, this majestic, the Israel of God, saying, stop prophesying, literally telling him, just shut up. Don't talk. We don't want to hear it. And then there are other groups of people there that didn't believe what he was saying because they said, ah, we're the people of God. Doesn't apply to us. Listen to what he says. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, Benai Israel, against the entire family, Mishpachot, which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I known among the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your wrongdoing. Now notice that the Lord says he has spoken against the sons of Israel, against the entire family of Israel. This includes Judah, but Amos hasn't gone to prophesy against Judah. But you go get a Jewish commentary, you look at what the sages say, they're all going to tell you the same thing. Judah was supposed to be paying attention. My friends, there is no prophecy that does not apply to you. Because sometimes the application is not what's happening to you, but what's happening to somebody else, and you best be paying attention. Paying attention. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10? That these things happened to them, Israel in the wilderness, the falling. As what? As examples for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. I didn't, I didn't die in the wilderness in, in uh, Sinai or Arabia. 
but it still applies to me. It's a prophetic moment that I need to be learning. You know what? God is gracious, but he's also just. And God says, you are the people. I chose you from all the other families of the world. I chose you. By the way, I didn't wear a watch, so if we don't get that sign or that clock back up there, we may be here a while. Anyway, <laughs> if it proceeds from the mouth of God, it is God-breathed and inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be fully equipped, whether it was about us or not. Then Amos asked seven questions, seeking to instill one truth. Has anybody ever asked you a question that just kind of backs you into a corner? You know, Jesus did this every once in a while. Can a blind man lead a blind man? <laughs> well, no, that's crazy, Lord. Then why are you doing it? Oops. Listen to these seven questions. Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no device in it or there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth uh, when it captures nothing at all? I mean, does, 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 a, does a trap go if there's nothing there? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will the people not tremble? If a disaster occurs in the city, has not the Lord brought it about? Amos asked these seven questions to force them to acknowledge one simple truth, cause and effect. You brought yourself, Israel, to this moment because of your idolatry at Bethel and Tel Dan, where Jeroboam erected the golden calf. You, you didn't think there was going to be an effect by what you did? You see, in life, we see and recognize that there are things, events, scenarios that do not occur unless something happens first, something that has a direct impact on causing these things to happen. And then he makes this statement, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. My friends, there's no such thing as a prophecy that doesn't have foreknowledge. Every one of the 12 prophets of the book of 12, we call them the minor prophets. Yes, they railed against the sin of Israel and Judah and, and, and the priesthood, but every one of those calls to repentance and, and, and that scathing denunciation also included, because of this, this is coming. Cause and effect. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan of the servants, the prophets. And then verse 8, and now you're going to know why we named it the lion's roar. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You see, this book of Revelation is the lion's roar because God has something he wants his bondservants to know in advance. He wants us to understand something has happened and it's going to bring about this effect. God is just and he has roared. Who can but prophesy? 
This book is also an apologetic of Jesus Christ. Now, an apologetic doesn't mean like, hey, I'm sorry about Jesus. It means a reason to believe. And this very first sentence gives us one that should be reason for us to accept Yeshua's messianic claim. Now, notice the chronology of the information that is given. It first comes from God to Jesus to John to us. Now, some will incorrectly see that as a reason to see Jesus as less than what and who he is. But in truth, it's the exact opposite. Jacob Neusner uh, is a Jewish author, and in his book, that uh, he, he wrote an introduction to uh, the, a part of the Talmud called the Yerushalami. There's two Talmuds. One was written in Babylon, and one was written in the Holy Land, actually up in Tiberias. And it is sometimes referred to as the Yerushalami, but it's the Jerusalem Talmud. And Neusner is writing an uh, introduction to this, and he, make, he asks this question. What, after all, makes a false messiah? He then relates that a false messiah is not someone who claims to save Israel, but rather someone who claims to save Israel without God. That's his definition of a false messiah. He then goes on and begins to describe this dialogue that goes on in the Talmud discussing Rabbi Akiva, who around 132 AD, 132 and 135 AD, declared a man named Simon Bar Kokhba to be the Messiah. There were even some Messianic believers that got inadvertently caught up in it until they realized Akiva was calling him the Messiah, then they, they backed out. It caused a real rift between the believers and Judaism. But this is what was known about this so-called Messiah. About 200,000 men were said to have cut off their little finger to show loyalty and allegiance to this false man. But then the Jerusalem Talmud relates that Bar Kokhba used to quote a psalm before he would go out to war. He would quote Psalm 60, verse 10, and this is what, he would, what it says. Lord of the world, do not help and do not hinder us. Hast thou not rejected us, O God? For you do not go forth, O God, with our armies. This is what this Messiah said. Hey, God, sit this one out. Don't go before us. Don't work against us. It's obvious you've rejected us. This is the man they, they, they called the Messiah. This is a man who was saying, I will do this without God. Listen to the very first sentence of the revelation or where the, the, the scripture doesn't shy away from showing us that the revelation came from God to Jesus. John has been testifying about this throughout his gospel. John 14, 10. The words I say to you, I do not speak from my own initiative. Jesus is saying this. But the Father abiding in me does his work. I mean, John's gospel testifies to this over and over and over again. I say nothing. I do nothing unless I see my Father doing it, unless my Father tells me to do it. I am completely dependent on him. Yet Israel would be willing to accept a Messiah who would say, God, just stay out of it and reject a Messiah who said, I don't do anything without God which God gave him 
does not demean the role of Yeshua. It is an apologetic. It is a perfect example of why we can trust that he is the Messiah. It also says that he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Now John's Hebrew name is Yochanan and uh, he was definitely a Hebrew prophet. We're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But he wasn't the only Yochanan running around prophesying. Before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the leading rabbi of the city of Jerusalem was a man named Yochanan ben Zakkai. He began to understand from signs in the temple that it would soon be destroyed. In fact, for about the Talmud talks about the signs and, and the testimonies about 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple. Things started happening in the temple that they interpreted as game over. It was just a matter of time. In the Babylonian Talmud, he is credited with st starting this following conversation. He said, in regard to the olam haba, which is the world to come, it can only refer to the messianic era. What he said was this, and he's talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament. He says, they cannot refer to the, to the world to come because the reward of the world to come was never revealed due to its infinite nature. So Yochanan ben Zakkai is running around telling people, whatever the prophets of the Old Testament said, it can only be about that era of the Messianic kingdom because God hasn't revealed his glory. Now, there's a part of what he said is true and a part that's not. Because the apostle Paul said, just as it is written, things, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered into the human heart, all these God has prepared for those who love him. No matter what description we have, no matter how glorious, how accurate, how, how beautifully written the, the imagery is painted for us, the truth is, it is beyond us. And yet God gave it anyway. Yochanan ben Zakkai wrongly believed that God would not reveal his glorious plans for us. And while we may not be able to fully comprehend the glory we will see, our Yochanan, the apostle, received from the Father the very revelation Yochanan ben Zakkai did not believe would be given or could be received. Which leaves us with a choice. Will we believe the revelation given by God to Yeshua, to Yochanan, to be given to us, or will we refuse to see and hear and ultimately miss the blessing of what the revelation wants to share with us? I close with this. My friends, does a lion roar when it has no prey? Does a lion roar from within its den when it has caught nothing? My friends, the lion of the tribe of Judah has roared. Who will but tremble? 
The Lord has spoken. Who can do anything other than prophesy? Who can but speak of the unveiling and revealing of who he is, the truth of our Messiah? Who can but declare his appearing is soon and certain? Who can but worship him for the advance of knowledge he has given to his family and to those who love him to prepare us and to equip us and to fill us? Who can but stand on the vast number of apologetic reasons to believe and then to stand fast and to keep walking? walking blameless in his presence. The lion of the tribe of Judah has roared. Yochanan was told, write what you have been shown. The lion of Judah has roared, and the question is, will we believe him? And I leave you this morning with this. The lion has roared, but we are not his prey. We are his pride. We are his people. Amen? Will we listen? Will we not tremble at the awesomeness of what he has done for us? Will we not allow him to equip us? Or will we keep listening to the extremist voices, to fear in our own flesh that would keep us from the very blessing he has for us? We are not his prey. We are his pride. We are his people. Blessed is he who reads and and those who hear the words of the prophecy and guard the things which are written in it, for the time is near.